the most valuable lesson is really just to play the long game and stick to it. Um, there is not a specific timetable and you kind of have to give what the economy and what the market gives you and, and get creative and pivot to make your goals happen if, um, if you can't get to it the way that you initially thought you could. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hey, our sponsor for the show today is Pine Financial Group, the leader in hard money lending in Colorado and Minnesota, and they were recently approved to offer their investment publicly. This investment offer is only for investors in Colorado and Minnesota and is only made through their investment prospects. Get your copy today. Simply visit www.pineinvestments.com and click to get started. Look, there's a reason why some of the wealthiest people in history invest in loans backed by real estate. Learn more about the risks and returns at www.pineinvestments.com. Hello and welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexterman. With me today, I'm excited to have Anna Kelly. Anna, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Todd. Yeah, I appreciate you being on the show uh, we had the pleasure to meet in Denver and uh, excited to have you on here. So, so yeah, a little bit about Anna. She is the founding partner of Zenith Capital Group, Apex Multifamily and REI Mom LLC. She's a former top ranked financial relationship manager for a private bank and began investing in real estate 20 years ago. And has purchased, renovated, and rented millions of dollars in real estate across numerous asset classes while working full-time and raising four active children. And that just sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> she recently retired from her corporate career after creating financial freedom through a rental property investing. She has active ownership in and manages a rental portfolio valued over $60 million and has invested in over $1,500 as a limited partner. Anna actively seeks out the best multifamily investment opportunities for her partners and investors. She coaches new investors and enjoys helping others to overcome fears, increase knowledge, and maximize, minimize risks in real estate. Uh, also, a Amazon number one best-selling author and runs a meetup group for women in real estate. What's the name of the book, by the way? It's called Resilience, Turning Your Setbacks into a Comeback. And it is a compilation book by the author of, or the publisher of Chicken Soup for the Entrepreneurial Soul. It's along that vein. It's stories of resilience and how people got to where they are today through, you know, overcoming a lot of challenges. Gotcha. That's a, that sounds like a good book. Yeah, it's um, awesome. Well, so I, I gave a, an introduction to you. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more kind of about what you've got going on, what your focus is, um, and what maybe some of that means that we, we just introduced you as? Sure. So as you alluded to in the intro, I, I did kind of build my real estate portfolio on the side while working full time and, and raising my kids. And I got into real estate really to start um, allowing myself to create enough passive income that I could leave my six-figure job and be home with my kids. And as it is for most of us, it, it was a longer journey than I thought it would be, especially while working full-time. Uh, my husband was an entrepreneur. He's a chiropractor. So he started his own business 13 years ago. 
and we had lots and lots of school debt like a lot of other people do when they're they're starting out and so I was basically the sole breadwinner by nature of you know starting a new company and real estate was kind of our way to supplement our income and it took a long time through the uh, the crash we started the business in 07 the economy crashed in 0809 and I worked for AIG so AIG was, you know, in a lot of trouble at that time and, and had a government bailout. And I had been told over and over, you know, we're, most of us are going to lose jobs. Our division may be sold. And so I knew that it would be tough for me to replace my income in a small town in rural Pennsylvania um, that I made with a big corporate uh, company. And so real estate, one rental at a time, allowed me to kind of build up that passive income and to replace my income so that I could then start focusing on much bigger properties and, and larger multifamily uh, buildings. So I retired in May, and in this last year, I've done you know 200 units as a joint venture with two, two other partners. And I like the joint venture model a lot because we're not quite cutting it up you know, by as many different investors. And then I'm also focused on you know, syndication. And so I've done two apartment complexes in Atlanta, Georgia, another 250 units that I, you know, co-sponsored and that I asset manage. So right now my focus has really shifted primarily to multifamily, uh, but I do believe in um, diversification. And so there are other asset classes that I like, like self-storage um, that, that I have some focus uh, chasing after as well for my own portfolio. Awesome. So full-time job doing this real estate thing on, on the side, there's, I'm sure quite a few listeners that are doing that. Um, you know, what's, what are some things that you learned along the way, maybe valuable lessons that you took to be able to push you along and continue to grow um, and maybe some benefits about working full-time while doing it? Sure. You know, at the time I really kind of begrudged the fact that I had to work full-time to be honest with you, because it, it was hard. You know, I worked 40 hours a week, I have four kiddos. They come home every day after school and, you know, need my full attention between homework and sports. And basically I had to rob every waking moment to invest. And so early mornings, my lunch breaks, you know, in the car between taxing my kids to different places. And then as soon as they went to bed at nine, I usually stayed up till, you know, midnight, one, two o'clock in the morning, trying to, you know, figure out how to continue to grow and to handle all the things that I needed to. So I really, the, the most valuable lesson is really just to play the long game and stick to it. Um, there is not a specific timetable and you kind of have to give what the economy and what the market gives you and, and get creative and pivot to make your goals happen if, um, if you can't get to it the way that you initially thought you could. So, you know, we had the economy shift on us in 08 and 09 and that changed, you know, my ability to get loans. Uh, because lending dried up and I worked for a company that banks viewed as as risky. So as an investor, it was tough for me to go the traditional route because we had a lot of debt, hundreds of thousands to start up a business. And so I had to start getting creative and, and go after owner financing and things like that. Um, and then over time, things happen with your rental properties that you don't anticipate, you know, big uh, insurance claims and things that kind of put you back and repairs that you didn't anticipate. So um, there's lots of ups and downs in the business. And I think you have to create a plan, have a vision to know why you're going after what you're going and just be committed to taking whatever comes, getting creative, jumping over the hurdles until you reach your, your vision. 
Yeah, that's so powerful. I mean, creating that plan and really understanding your vision and where you're going, and it's going to drive you a long ways. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, you took the long game. It took you a while to get there, but you, it sounds like you had a, probably a pretty good income by the job title. And so to give that up, I mean, it, it, but the other positive probably um, is you had nice income coming in. So you had money to be able to invest with that income while, you know, still being able to, um, you know, feed your family and stuff like that. So, and honestly, Todd, I really didn't. So even though I had a six figure income, you know, by the time they take out your 401k and your health insurance and all of that, you know, it it didn't look as great. And when I looked at my net as it did, you know, my gross, but because we had so much uh, debt for my husband's business and I had my kids in private school, we really lived check to check through most of this wealth Mm -hmm. accumulation. And my goal was an income number. And I really wasn't thinking about the asset accumulation and the net worth as much. So when you looked at me on paper, I looked really, really good. I mean, I had a multi-million dollar net worth but I really was still living check to check. And the reason for that is because everything we made on our rentals, we used it to buy another one, rehab those units and and force the values, refinance and continue to do it. So I grew because of the equity and the sweat equity that we were able to put in to raise the values of those buildings. And then every time we made money on refinancing, we just put it down on another and another and another over and over and over again. So um, it's one of the things that made it easier for me when I did pull the trigger to retire was that I really didn't feel any difference in income from the point that I was working and investing on the side to the point where I started living on the rental income because we just strategically um, made made that shift very um, smoothly and and did it when it was wise to do so. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. So you kind of just pretended like the rental income wasn't even there and, and used that extra income, anything that came in as just more powder to keep on buying. Yes. Yeah. And, and it makes a lot of sense to do, especially as you're trying to build and, and grow and continue to go. And mm-hmm. I like that you talk about, you, you mentioned you looked at the income level and not at the paper net worth. A lot of us look at our paper net worth and go, wow, you know, um, but that doesn't put food on the table. It doesn't pay bills. Um, right. Now, granted, that's a good thing to understand and to have, but you also need to make sure you have the income to replace your job like you, like you were focusing on as well. Exactly. And, and to learn how to strategically use that equity, because a lot of people have a lot of equity on paper, but they're not using it at all, or they're very, you know, highly leveraged. Um, and, and so, those those numbers could be wiped out if you're not really careful. So I'm definitely an advocate of using the equity equity you have, you know, strategically and wisely to to grow and continue to buy. Well, explain that to us because that is that is very true. I mean, we can have a lot of equity sitting there, which is great, but then we're not utilizing it. We've got basically debt equity, or we can leverage, and that's great, but if a recession happens, if a 2007 happens again, then we might not have anything. Uh, so what, what's your advice on, you know, properly leveraging your equity? Sure. I am really conservative when it comes to debt because I started out a business. We were not wise to start the business when we did. 
with three quarters of a million dollars in debt in 07. Sold everything, started over. And I didn't know if I was going to have a job or not. I had kind of this work from home trial basis thing. He did really well the first year and then the economy crashed. So number one is we didn't understand the economy. We didn't understand market cycles. So even though I had been trained as a financial advisor and I had clients that we talked about markets and, you know, investing dollar cost averaging for the long term and, you know, some markets are up and some markets are down. I really didn't have a fundamental understanding of the economy overall and how that could impact both being an entrepreneur and how it could impact um, us as a real estate investor. You know, in 07, we thought, wow, the economy is doing really well. This is not going to turn anytime soon. Things are great. And we never could have foreseen what was going to happen. And so um, now when I use debt, I do not use debt for any once. I don't use debt for um, a car, for example, unless it's very strategic, you know, 0% financing and I can get bonus depreciation and all of that kind of stuff. We don't use debt to go on vacation. We don't use debt to buy fancy cars that we don't need. The only debt that I am comfortable with is debt that is buying assets, which have cash flow, which pay the liability and then give me extra. And so if I can lock in long-term low interest rate debt for at least five, ideally 20 or 30 years, then I'm comfortable using that debt only as a down payment on the next cash flowing asset. Because if my, my um, second mortgage, for example, is going to go up, you know, three or $400 a month, I can take that three or $400 a month and easily make another $1,200 a month. So I'm making an extra $1,000 a month on a two or $300 mortgage payment. And so that's pretty, pretty smart. As long as you're investing in economies that are very resilient, where there's a lot of diverse employers around and where there's strong school systems and you know that rents are not going to take an astronomical hit during a downturn. So I'm really careful about what I'm buying right now and only using debt to buy those kind of assets that I think over the long term have a really high probability of continuing to have um, high occupancy rates, low vacancy rates, and, and rents that are fairly stable. Do, do you do a uh, certain leverage amount? I mean, are you, are you only going up to you know, 70% or is there a certain key there or is it more about your cash flow? I think you have to really know yourself and really know your risk tolerance and really have a backup plan in order to leverage to the max that a bank will let you do. So for example, I don't like bridge financing. Some people will leverage over 75 or 80% and they've got bridge debt. I'm not comfortable with where I see we're heading in an economic cycle, more likely to recession in the next couple of years, buying anything that I need debt that I may have to refinance. Because if I'm 70, 80%, 90% leverage and I can't refi in a couple years, if yeah. banks tighten up their LTV requirements and, and then I'm stuck with a property I can't refinance, I'd be really nervous. But for me, because I'm primarily locking in on my larger multis, they're all agency debt. So we've got, I've got three Freddie loans, two are SBA, one is conventional, and I've got a 10-year fixed term on that debt and at 30-year AM and a few years of interest only. So what that allows me to do is even though I don't need the interest only to make the deal work, for the first couple of years, my cash flow is really high and I can kind of set aside some more reserves so that when those mortgage payments kick in, 
even if we had a little bit of a flounder in the economy, we're going to be able to, to make our debt service. So I like those kind of loans, obviously, that are locked in for a longer period of time. And if the bank will lend me 80%, which is pretty conservative at low rate interest on a good deal that justifies the leverage, I'm going to take the full 80% and I'm going to put 20% down or raise capital for that 20%. But again, only because it's low rate fixed financing. So sometimes in the market, our rates aren't very high, you know, aren't very low like they are today. I mean, we're at a historically really great time to have leverage. So, you know, if I can borrow at three, four, even up to 5% and only put 20% down, I can buy five properties for the same cash it would take me to own something free and clear. So I'm, you know, four to five timing my income and I'm actually protecting myself from a liability standpoint and from an equity depreciation standpoint. So what I mean by that, Todd, is if the market's going to shift and values do go down, if I leveraged 80% on a building that was really going to go down, I might end up being fully leveraged on the new value. And I had never touched or tapped into that equity to use it to grow and to give myself some safety. So I would rather borrow the 80%, you know, lock in my equity. You know, let's say I have something free and clear. I'll borrow against it at three or 4%, take 80% out that the bank will let me, and I'll use that to buy more property because I'm making myself more stable by having more income over time. And I've, I've basically captured that equity instead of essentially having it locked under my mattress, not doing anything at all and having inflation eat away at it if I don't use it. Have you refinanced your properties that you bought early on, let's say 2010, 11, 12? Do you, do you do that strategy where you refinance to be able to pull out equity or do you just kind of keep on paying them down? Um, I basically took second mortgages on a bunch of them. So thankfully in my small town, one of the nice things about going with some of the smaller commercial lenders that keep their loans in house is they really develop a relationship and a trust factor with you. So where it took me five years to get the banks to say yes after 09, once they said yes and they saw that I was being very careful with my growth, um, they started allowing me to do seconds on those properties. And so I would get a new appraisal, leverage it up to 80%. They'd give me the cash with the understanding that that cash was to be used as a down payment on the next property. So they wouldn't just give me the cash to spend, but they'd give it to me as, okay, you, you know, you've got 50 in this one. We'll give this to you to put as a down payment of 50 on your next four unit property. So I leveraged a bunch, bunch of them with second mortgages and all of them, my rates were somewhere between like 3.75 and I think my max was 5.2. So they're fairly low rate and they're locked in for at least five to seven years. Nice. Nice. So you mentioned um, the, the crash, right? And, and how you guys were setting up this business and you didn't understand the cycles, but now you've went through it and presumably you may understand a lot more about cycles. There's a lot of chat talk right now, chatter about we're, you know, approaching an, another recession. Actually, I got a, a mailing from a realtor the other day saying there's a crash coming and it was like a little scare tactic to get me to, to sell my house, which is a whole nother story. But, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, 2020 is going to be the next crash. And there's some, but there's some people also that are, are going, hey, multifamily strong, like it's going to go forever. It's never mm -hmm. going to crash type of thing. Um, what do you, obviously we can't predict that. And, and I'm not going to, 
ask you, you can go ahead and give it if you want, but I'm not going to ask you when we're going to crash next, but what do you do? You've mentioned some stuff already, but what are you doing to kind of make sure that you're prepared? Anything other than what you've mentioned uh, so far? Yeah, I think, you know, one question I've learned to kind of track trends in the past and, you know, financial advisors will tell you the past is not indicative of future, you know, what's going to happen in the future, but we can learn a lot from the past. And so I learned that I wasn't prepared and I learned that I didn't see what was coming. And I had these rose colored glasses like everybody else that it was continuing to do well. So I don't know when the next recession is going to be and exactly how bad it's going to be. From everything I've read, and I read a lot more of economists now from all different veins and what they think is going to happen, I don't think it's going to be as bad for real estate as 08 and 09 was, because I think most of it's going to be triggered by things other than real estate this time. And I think multifamily is very well um, positioned in the economy where we are in terms of the number of renters that are renters by necessity. We happen to have a huge demand. And even though we're kind of in that hyper supply, I believe, state of the economy, it's very regionalized. And so some areas are really in hyper supply and other areas, there's still significant demand more than there is supply, especially if you're not looking, you know, investing in like class A new stock where there's a lot of competition. If you're providing workforce housing and let's say a C plus to B, B minus area where there's good schools you're always going to have rental demand. And so I, I love multifamily during a recession. Um, I think it's fairly resilient compared to a lot of other things you can be in, like the stock market, for example. And so I think when we look at asset classes, we have to say, what is historically done fairly well compared to other investment options during a recession? And that's kind of what we should focus on. So one of the things I look at, which I touched on a little bit, is the school districts and hospital systems. And so in the last recessions, the areas that have been like anchored by a strong hospital system have done the best economically and had the least ups and downs in their values. And so areas like, you know, being being by any major medical system where you've also got really good schools, they tend to draw in a lot of other businesses and employers in the area because the hospital just kind of anchors an area. So if you can find an area that has a great hospital system, they're typically going to have a pretty diverse employer base where no one employer is more than like 15 to 20% of your economy locally. And that way, even if one sector is really hit hard in a recession, I've got four other ses- you know, sectors that may do fairly well and keep people employed which is going to help my tenant base to be able to pay their bills, pay their rents without me having to really cut my rent significantly. So strong areas, you know, strong school systems, strong hospital systems. I really will only invest in that type of market right now. It doesn't have to be a major MSA. And in fact, sometimes, as you know, it doesn't make sense to invest in a major MSA if you can't get a deal because there's just too much competition in that particular niche. It might make sense to move to a secondary or tertiary market if it still has really great supply demand fundamentals and economic, you know, growth fundamentals. Um, I I don't think it's wise to chase yield in markets that you don't know and that don't have really strong uh, growth, both from employers coming in and people coming in um, that that you think is going to continue even if we're in a recession. So that's the main thing I'm doing is just being more picky about what I buy and I'm being really um, picky about my, um, my standards. So if I can't find something that I know I'm going to 
have a certain ROI and a certain cash on cash, even if I can't bump rents over the next couple of years, I'm not going to be lured by other options that look good on paper that I don't think have that resiliency to really stand up to being able to, to hit their numbers if, if a recession happens. Yeah, a lot of good points in there. And, and I want to unpack a few. I mean, the school district, in my opinion, is, is extremely valuable. When I look at the, you know, where the recession hit the hardest and, and the least, it is directly related to school districts. I mean, mm-hmm. our, our top school districts in the Twin Cities where I live, those markets, you know, went down by a couple percent and that's it. And, and they recovered the fastest too. And now they're worth a lot more than they were pre-recession where the ones with the worst school districts, the worst infrastructure, those ones went down the hardest and they're still struggling to, to pick back up. And and yeah. so that's, that's really important, valuable. Uh, it doesn't have to be a class in that area. You know, you could still buy B class asset in the, the top school districts. Yeah. Um, so that I think is extremely important. Uh, I, I think the other thing you mentioned too, on chasing yield, a lot of people just want to chase this, uh, this you know, cash on cash, cash flow, cap rate, whatever you want to call it, but they don't pay attention really to the, fundamentals of the market, fundamentals of the neighborhood, whatever it might be. They're just going, oh, I can buy this property for, you know, a a nine cap or an eight cap or a 10 cap or whatever. And that's what they're looking at. And they're not looking any closer. And that's, that's, that's dangerous. That's going to get you into trouble. And I see a lot of that right now. It really concerns me. And I think I probably see a lot of it more now because I have put myself out there that I invest passively as well as, you know, the things that I'm operating on my own. So I get a lot of deals and a lot of them, it's like, I I like the operator. They might have some experience, but they're new to that market. And they're just kind of trusting that the broker and the property management company is going to steer them right. And that, Hey, this is a great asset. But, you know, your, your investing criteria needs to be non-negotiable. Like no matter where I'm going, I've got to have all of these standards and it's got to hit all of those buckets. And they're just not really um, stress testing it for what could happen. And I think a lot of that's because they don't really know the market that they're going after. And so, you know, part of my success has really been because I've, I've stayed laser focused, fairly local because I know the market really, really well. And I have great connections with brokers who bring us off-market stuff because we've built up a reputation for, number one, not being a slumlord, number two, for, for taking care of our assets and, and, and not backing out and retrading. So, you know, staying hyper-local just allows us to really understand all the things that are happening in an economy, um, you know, the, the new stock that's coming in. You know, we, we know people that are on, um, you know, the city and the state um, economic development um, committees. And so we're able to find out, hey, is there new buildings coming in here that are about to compete with us? Or you know, what, what municipalities are struggling and which ones are doing well? And I think you've got to really be able to dig deep into these markets before you go in, and especially before you bring investors in, um, kind of going in blind just because you think you found something that looks good on paper. Because a lot of things look good on paper that really just don't have, um, don't, don't check the boxes to, to help you to be pretty sure of success. Yeah. And, you know, just because you saw an article that said this is a top market or it's got high job growth or whatever it is, doesn't mean it's a good market. So as you said, just you really got to dig deep and get into the market, get into mm-hmm. 
the sub market too, not only just the market, but really the neighborhood and, the, and understanding what's happening in that area is so important. And that doesn't, whether that's your market that you're living in, because my guess is, you know, your market one, because you're living there, but two, because you actually pay attention. You actually are talking to the right people. You're actually reading business news articles and things like that to get involved and to stay, to stay abreast of what's going on. Some people think, well, I know my market, I'm going to invest there, but they have no clue what's going on. You're actually learning about it. Yeah. And even going in another market, I mean, there's a couple of other markets that I really like. So I'm spending a lot of time you know, looking at other operators, looking at brokers, reviewing deals to kind of get a good feel for what rents really are, you know, kind of the overall economy and those kinds of things. And, you know, if I find a great deal there, I'll do the deal, but I've got to bring in people that are boots on the ground that really know that market better than I do that can help us to navigate it and answer those questions before we pull the trigger. Hey, let's take a minute to thank our sponsor, Pine Financial Group. Look, you work hard for your money. Is your money working hard for you? Because of inflation, money sitting idle erodes your wealth. Many investors understand that real estate is a great investment, but may not want the effort or the risk that comes with owning their own property. They want to sit back and have payments, hit their bank account each and every month. Stop eroding your wealth and start building it by asking your money to work for you. You should be earning profits while you sleep in investment backed by real estate. Pine Financial Group, the leader in hard money lending in Colorado and Minnesota, was recently approved to offer their investment publicly. This investment offers only for investors in Colorado and Minnesota and is only made through the investment prospectus. Get your copy today. Simply visit www.pineinvestments.com and click to get started. There's a reason why some of the wealthiest people in history invest in loans backed by real estate. Learn more about the risks and returns at www.pineinvestments.com. It's www.pineinvestments.com. So I want to switch gears a little bit. I want to know about um, some of your success habits. What are, what are maybe three keys to, you know, being able to operate your business successfully, growing it to where you have and now continuing to grow it. What are three key factors? I think one is I really know myself and I'm becoming better in tuned with why I'm investing and making sure that I'm not chasing anything that doesn't fit my real purpose and vision for life and for my time and for my uh, financial goals. So for example, Todd, you know, I see people who maybe, you know, for a while they're in multifamily and then they shift gear and then they do self storage and then they shift gear and they go to mobile home parks and they kind of are all over the place or they flip some and then they, you know, um, hold their own rentals. And I used to dabble a lot too, trying to say, okay, where can I make money? And that's what I'm going to do. And it wasn't until I really said, listen, my goals over the next five years is income. And I think every investor needs to think about where you are as an investor in your own personal finances and with your family. Are you at a point in life where you're trying to create income primarily or where you've got the income and you're now trying to grow your assets 
or where you're, you've got the income and the assets and you really need to focus on preserving that ass, those assets and making sure you don't lose it. And there should be a little bit of a mix along that you know, spectrum. We, and one of the things I love about rental real estate is it kind of hits all three buckets. So yeah. if you buy the right types of assets in the areas we're talking about, you'll have income, you'll have that growth and fourth appreciation, but you'll also have that preservation by buying something that's stable that will kind of weather these economic storms um, but I think you need to figure out what's your primary. And those are the kind of assets you go after and, and not to waste time chasing deals that don't fit your real non-negotiables of who you are as an investor and why you're doing it. So if you are really focused on, on growing your income, you're not going to invest in properties initially that are 30 or 40% vacant in an up and coming area, hoping you can put all this CapEx in it. And it's going to make all this money in three to five years, because how are you going to pay the mortgage until then if the operation you know, doesn't go successfully along with your business plan? So it just opens you up to chasing something different that isn't giving you what you really need. So over the years, and especially in the last year or two, I've become really laser focused on what I need as an investor. And those are the primary kind of deals that I'm going to go after. And I've learned to say no a lot more than I've said yes, because it's easy to get excited about, man, I can make all this money on this deal and I can make money for my investors. But if it isn't really the perfect fit, I heard Victor Minash say something about an investor that really resonated with me. And it's like your operator and your investor need to come to a deal wearing the same perfect matched pair of shoes. And if I have on a high heel, you know, and, and you've got on a pair of flats and, and we both like what we're doing and we like each other, but it's just not the perfect fit, then we need to say, no, this isn't the right deal. This isn't the right time. And, and you can't do that until you really know, you know, what your goals are. So yeah. for me, that's really important to, to my success is that I've, I've gotten really picky um, and I'm only doing deals that I know I'm going to be happy with today and happy with in the future. Um, because they, they fit with what I'm looking to do. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is, is playing the long game and really being resilient. And I think it is the key to my success, you know, not only in investing, but just in my life in general. Um, so many things happen in life and in business and in real estate that you don't expect. And things rarely go as planned. You know, we've got great plans and it's important to be able to plan and have business plans and, and know how to execute. But I don't know a single investor who everything they've bought has gone as, as planned. There's a lot of risk. And when there's a lot of reward, there's a lot of risk involved. And we, you know, come up against situations that we think we don't have what it takes to get out of, or we just don't know how to navigate it. And so, I've just learned rather than to wallow in those difficult things when they come to say, how can I fix this? How can I get out of it? How can I use this to make myself stronger and to become a better investor? And just that resilience and stick-to-itiveness is so important for long-term success because too many people get knocked down once or twice and then they just drop out of the game no matter what your niche um, or you get jaded because of a bad partner or a bad deal, you know, whatever might happen. Um, and so you just have to, to stick to it and play the long game and realize that, you know, if you're committed to success, there are, are resources and people that can help you to, to jump through any hurdles. Yeah, um, that long game is, is important. It's so easy to get caught up because everybody's, 
especially social media and stuff. I mean, everybody's talking about how they're doing all these amazing deals and hear people, everybody wants to get rich quick. I mean, right. Just the easy way, the easy way out. So to be patient, to play that long game, to be, you know, investing long-term like you did, but, and finally quitting your job, uh, you know, there had to have been times where you were like, you want it, you want it to be now, but you were just patient and you stuck to it and you're resilient and you played the long game and it worked out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very thankful, you know, because there's so many times when I did get knocked off and I was like, I quit. I'm not doing this anymore. It's too hard. You know, it's not worth it. And then, you know, I finally realized, okay, this is my emotion speaking. If I put my thinking cap back on and just think with a clear head, you know, I can get through this and get through that hurdle. But I mean, I've, t- I've had things happen that knocked me off my game for a couple of years. And each time I get back on the horse faster and faster. Yeah. Um, but just that, that resilience and knowing who you are as an investor. And something that you mentioned um, about Facebook, you know, I've done some posts on this recently, but so many people get excited about what other people are doing and think that is what I need to do. Or if they can do it, I can do it. And it makes us make a lot of really dumb decisions for our own selves, for what type of investor we want to be and what our own goals are. And where we talked about only chasing the kind of deals that you should chase, we also need to be really careful to put our time investment in the right place and to partner with the right people. And so not only do you have to you know, know yourself, find the right kind of deals, um, but if I'm really looking to continue to grow what I'm really good at, I realize also is some of the things that take the most time. So the bigger deals I do, I like the analysis. I like the asset management. The more deals I do, the bigger I'm going to get and the more time commitment I'm going to have to put in. And it's really hard for me as a driver and an overachiever to make myself pull back the reins and say, I don't have to have a thousand more units. I've met the goal of replacing my income and being financially free. So if I don't ever do another deal, I don't have to feel like I don't have it and I'm not killing it like all these other people. I'm just going to do the kind of deals that fit with my, um, my family life and my you know, amount of time I'm willing to commit. commit. And if I want to grow, I've got to start thinking more strategically about rather than being the one that does all the, you know, the analysis and, and the financing and the asset management do I want to grow a company and then how do I hire the right people and how much time is it going to take to do all that? And is it worth it? And is it really, really what I want? And is it aligned with what I want for life? And I see way too many people, you know, I worked 70, 80 hours a week for 12 years and it was hard. It was really hard. But now that I've retired and I don't have to, I get to do the deals that fit well within my family. And I get to say, I'm willing to work till three o'clock. And if something chasing those objects and chasing Facebook fame and chasing more numbers is going to make me work 70, 80 hours a week again for the next 10 years and miss out on my kids, it's not worth it. And so I think we just have to be really careful about what we want in life and only do business and do deals that fit what your real vision for life is rather than chasing deals for money or for a sense of competition. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And that's and that's why having that that reason, that purpose, that why mm-hmm. is so important. Uh, and making sure you stay focused on it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, what's a mistake that you've made? And how oh, did you I learn from it? 
Uh, I think one of the biggest mistakes I made that I, I learned, it took me a lot of years to learn, was I got really jaded um, from working with other people. Mm-hmm. I went to a, a seminar, long story short, not unlike a lot of them today, a conference, and someone purport, you know, purported to be this really great, successful multifamily investor, and I hired her as a coach and found out she was a complete fraud. And it jaded me. I lost money. I had hired her. I almost went to work for her. But thank God I figured out she was an unhonest person before I had quit my job. And um, I just had a bad taste in my mouth for being able to discern people and being able to be as good of a judge of character as I thought I was. And because she just shocked us and defrauded me and, and you know, she took like $2 million from people as a coach and then didn't do what she was supposed to do. So a lot of really smart people got snowed over. I thought, I can't trust people. I can't partner with people. I just got to figure this out alone. And I learned about syndication back in 2009 from her. But because I was so jaded from it, I never pursued that path. I just said, we're just going to do it on our own and, and figure it out on our own. And by the grace of God, we figured it out. And using small multifamily properties, like a lot of four unit buildings before I started going bigger, we were able to replace that income. But it was so hard because we did not work with other people and we did not um, network with other people and hear how other people were doing it. So we put more work on ourselves because we were a a one hit. we, We were a lone ranger. You know, we were like doing it all. And I wished if I looked back and I could change one thing, I would have said, don't go it alone, you know, get up and, 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 you know, get back on the saddle and, and connect with other people. Cause I think if I had started syndicating at that point and partnering with other people who were intelligent and had integrity, I probably could have gone so much further, so much faster. Um, and it, it, it was a mistake that I made. Now I learned by doing it all myself over time. Um, but I think that I could have gone a lot further if I had started to trust people and, and work with other people who were really good mentors and really good people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that definitely, I, I've, I've learned similar uh, experiences. So I, can, I can understand what, what you went through there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got a couple more questions before we wrap up. Uh, what's a favorite book? Real estate, business, mindset. What's your favorite book? Life and Air. I recommend everybody go out and read Life and Air. Um, It is kind of a novel type book, but it has a lot of principles that really help you to think about creating your life by design. And we work so hard to chase money so that one day we can live the lives that we desire and dream instead of saying, what's the life I desire and dream today? Let me start doing things to live that and then do what I enjoy to help me to make more money to be able to do it more later. But you're chasing the lifestyle and creating it now. And everything you do has to be a yes only if it fits that lifestyle rather than chasing money. So it's a, it's a book I highly recommend anybody read, whether you're you know, in multifamily, whether you're doing a small investments, no matter what your business, it's, it's a powerful book. Yeah, I really enjoyed that book as well. Um, what's, uh, what's a daily habit or routine that you have that sets you up for success? 
Um, every morning I start my morning off in quiet. Once the kids are out of the house, I have my coffee, I pray, I try to read my Bible and just kind of create my mindset for the day and reminding myself that there's something bigger than just today. Um, and you know, that, that there's a purpose for life and trying to make sure that, um, I don't lose sight of that in, in the pursuit of wealth. And then the other thing is I've gotten really good at time blocking. So I, I was a project manager, you know, I've done all kinds of management consulting um, in my corporate career. So I've lived by schedules and goals, but there's something powerful when you can say, what's most important to me in my life? How do I time block time every single day for those things that are really important to me in life, personal first, and then with the amount of time that's left, how do I make sure that every moment of my work hours, I'm fully committed to growing in different areas. And so I, I time block my time now where I've got a certain amount of time every single day that's this, this time only is committed to asset management. And then this time is committed to network development. And then this time is you know committed to finding deal activities or th things of that nature. So I make sure that I have purposeful time for every category where I want to grow and then I have some freedom and flexibility within that as to what activities I, I choose to do. But I've gotten much further focusing on growth for every area than I did ever just, um, you know, scheduling meetings and having a task list and a to-do list and trying to get through it all. I like the categorizing that time block. That's something I haven't really done is categorizing the things that you want to have growth on. I've mm -hmm. done time blocking, but it hasn't been to that extent. So I really like that. Something I think I'll I'll apply here. Uh, last question before we wrap up. What are your three pillars of wealth creation? I think focusing at all times on where you are in the trifecta of wealth building, and that's the income, the growth, and the preservation phases of uh, wealth development. So I'm always thinking about where am I? Is this deal going to meet my needs for income, growth, and preservation? And if it says no to one of those, I'm probably not going to do it. So I, I just filter my wealth building through the eyes of an investor holistically rather than on a deal-by-deal -deal basis. Um, my second is that playing the long game and being resilient. I think that's super important. And then the third is really knowing yourself, knowing your skills, knowing what you're passionate about and knowing what you can make money doing and finding the thing that really is your purpose and the thing that you're going to be able to do for the long term to grow wealth, that you're going to have this stick to because you're good at it. You can make money at it and you're really passionate about it. Awesome. Awesome. I love them. Um, the last question, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Sure. So the easiest way is on Facebook. Um, my Facebook page is Anna, REI Mom Kelly. And I have a Facebook group called Creating Real Estate Wealth That Lasts with Anna, REI Mom. And I also have a website, which is reimom.com. Awesome. We'll put those all in the show notes. Definitely appreciate the time you were able to spend with us and have a fantastic rest of the day. Thank you so much for having me. It was my honor, Todd. Hey, thanks for listening to the show. A couple things before we go. Again, go on to our Facebook page, Pillars of Wealth. We'd love to have you on there. Go on to iTunes, give us a rating and review, and subscribe to the show. 
Also, um, you know, don't forget, reach out to me if you want any help with uh, potentially growing your business and reach out to John Styles to help you buy or sell real estate. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Have a fantastic the rest of the day. And as I say, make every day a Saturday.